Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 6. That's a new one. Mark chapter 6. Matthew 28, Mark chapter 6. So, Matthew 28, we'll read that. Y'all should be very familiar with this one at this point. And Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then turn over to Mark chapter 6, looking in verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Let us pray over the word before we dive into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is precious and it is holy. And we ask you now that you humble us under it. Do a miracle in us, Lord, that through this thing that we call preaching and the foolishness of it, men might believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of you know that we have, uh, uh, we are continuing our series on this, what I've called Ascent. We are Ascent Church. We are made up of people who have been sent into the world by Jesus Christ on this great mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've uh, taken that mainly from two texts in Matthew. The first text is in chapter 16 where he tells Peter that you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will circle back to that in an upcoming message to finish out the series. Uh, the second text is here in uh, Matthew 28 that we just read this morning where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Um, and we're camping out here just a little bit on this Great Commission. Because one of our, our problems in the Great Commission, the, that all-important mission that Jesus has given to each and every one of us uh, to go and make disciples, it's not so much that we haven't mobilized into the world like we talked about last week. It's not so much that we're not building churches, that we're not doing programs, we're not supporting missions. The problem that I think we most often run into is that we just simply, we don't, we don't see the lost people that are right in front of us. And when I say that we don't see them, I don't mean that we don't physically see them. Because, uh, you know, we, we see people. We see plenty of people. We see lots and, and lots of people. We see them in all shapes and sizes. We see them in all different uh, colors and races and all different uh, persuasions and all different ladders on the socioeconomic scale. We see uh, rich people and poor people. We draw all different kinds of distinctions. We put them in categories. People who look like us, people who don't look like us who act like us and don't act like us and who smell like us and who don't smell like us and all different kinds of people. And uh, in the middle of all this seeing people and categorizing people, there's, there's one thing that we often don't see because mostly we choose to ignore it. We've chosen, chosen to turn a blind eye to it. Among all the people that we see and that we put into categories, we often don't see the lost not because they're not there, we just don't see them that way. 
The sad thing is that it's with the ones that are closest to us, our friends and our family, that we have to work the hardest in order to maintain our blindness or our indifference to the lost souls that are closest to us. We have to work especially hard to be blind to those people that are in our circles, our families and our friends. Ouch. It might feel like that a little bit this morning, just kind of put that out there. So last week, my goal was to show you the problem, Christian blindness, which is to say that we don't, we don't you know, see the lost. We're blind to them because we are either too busy uh, with other things to notice that their, their eternal, tragic, desperate, horrible, tormented condition, or Uh, We simply just don't care enough about them to actually do anything about their eternal, tragic, desperate, horrible, tormented condition. In either situation, what has happened is that we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have failed in our mission to make disciples. And most tragically, we have failed to represent Jesus Christ in a world that he died to save the world that he sent us out into as missionaries to build his church. In short, to put it in a nutshell, our willful blindness has caused us to carry the holy name of Jesus Christ in shameful disobedience when we are blind to the lost state of those who are right under our noses. Is this reaching anybody? I don't feel like I'm getting through to anybody. Okay. Okay. All right. Apparently everybody's okay. So what I'm saying is this is bad when we turn a blind eye to those who are lost. It's very bad, especially to those who are right in our own circles of influence, our friends and family and their coworkers and neighbors. It's as if God has planted wheat right in your own backyard and he said, here, see what you can do with that. Remember, Jesus said that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. So pray then that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field. And the whole time we're praying, Lord, would you send laborers into the field? And he's looking at you saying, so, you know, we've camped out here on this commandment to send disciples or to make disciples uh, for the last couple of weeks because it, it is a big deal. <laughs> it's a pretty big deal to Jesus. It's a pretty big deal to the Lord, and it ought to be a big deal to us. I spent quite a bit of time last week laying out the case for God's heart toward making disciples and exactly why it's such a big deal for Him. And because it's a big deal for God, and if He commands us to do it, and He's passionate about it uh, in the way that He is, then we ought to be careful to obey it. It ought to be near and dear to our hearts as well, but not as a matter of duty or obligation, but as a matter of heart, as a matter of serious joy, as a a matter of compassion. And as I was talking about our blindness last week, I touched on how we ought to see as Christians. And that's what I want to bring you to this week, which is Christian seeing. The antidote to blindness. What is the antidote to this kind of blindness where we're indifferent to the lost state of others around us? This kind of spiritual indifference 
that many Christians seem to be plagued with. Do you, do you not? Is this, am I the only one that sees this? I see this all around me. Amen. Christians are indifferent to the lost around them. It seems like it's not a big deal to the church. To a lot of Christians, they have lost members in their family and lost members of their friends that they just don't seem to care enough about to say anything to them. So I think it's a big deal and we ought to, we ought to dive deeply into it. What is the antidote to this? If I had to answer it with one word, I would say it's compassion. And if I had to answer it in the way that I think best answers the question, I would say that it is compassion that is enabled and fueled by serious joy. Because that's just who, who I am and what I like to do. How do we get there, though? How do we get to compassion that is enabled and fueled by serious joy? How do we go from indifference to this great compassion? I think we have to start with looking at our own salvation. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story where Jesus goes to a dinner at a Pharisee's house. And a woman comes to Jesus. And we, we know this woman as the woman with the alabaster box. She's a woman of the city. She's heard that Jesus is having a dinner at this house. And so she comes and she can't help herself. She falls down at his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair and her tears in worshipful stance. And people are just astonished at, his, at this, that he would allow it and that she would, would do it. The Bible calls her a woman of the city, and it says, who was a, a sinner. I love the language, the, the verb tense that it uses. She is a woman of the city who was a sinner. She was a sinner. You see, she had been bound and lost in darkness, but now she is uh, no longer lost in that darkness. She is literally standing in the light, walking gloriously, literally in the light. Christ, the Lord, who is the light of the world, is right there, but, but never mind that he is the light of the whole world because it's a whole lot more personal than that. This is her Jesus. This is her Redeemer. Jesus is her Savior. He is her Lord in righteousness. He is her glory and the lifter of her head. And you know what? She just couldn't help herself. She just had to fall down and worship him for all that he had done. And I just wonder when I think about this story, it just makes me wonder when you think about Jesus and all that he's done for you, when you think about the cross and all that he's done for you. If you picture the Lord standing right here in front of you, would you bring yourself to worship? Would you fall down and worship him? Does it make you have to worship in Jesus' name because of all that he's done for you? I should be getting shouts of glory from this congregation. Do you know what Jesus has done for you today? Have you been forgiven much? Did y'all not get as much sleep as I did? I got half an hour. How much did you get? Because I feel like I'm a little bit more excited than y'all are. The woman was filled with much love. Because she had been given so much forgiveness. Have you been given so much forgiveness? 
Can I just tell you that all sin, every last bit of it, is totally damning before God? All sin separates us. All sin totally condemns us because it is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. If you have been forgiven of any sin at all, I mean a white lie. If you've been forgiven of any sin at all, you have been forgiven of much great sin. And you ought to be shouting from the mountaintops, thank you Lord for your mercy. You have saved me from eternal condemnation. Gratitude. And that feeling, knowing the, the depth of my sin, that's one thing. Knowing how much mercy has been shown to me, how deeply he has loved me, the glory that awaits me. The fullness of joy, the abundance of life, the treasure and the richness of his grace. That is what moves us in this mission of making disciples. Not duty, not obligation. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul told the church that it is God who is at work in them to will and to work his good pleasure. So that they needed to work out their own salvation with fear and with trembling. What that means is that they need to always be aware that this is a great and awesome thing that has been done for them. And it, it came at a great cost so that they needed to approach their salvation with great reverence and great care. Not lightly and not flippantly. Not something that we just throw on the couch. There needs to be something that we think about. The gospel is something that we need to consider. Something that's on the forefront of our minds. The gospel is not something that we do. Has it ever occurred to you? You don't do the gospel? The gospel is the good... The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good... News. It is neither a commandment nor an instruction. Jesus did it, and we must remember it. The gospel is not something that we do. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he went through all the instruction and all the correction and all the admonition. And then, and then towards the end of the letter, about chapter 15 or so, he, 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 he said, hey guys, brothers, I need to remind you of the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel. There's all this instruction for the church, all this way to live, and all these things that you should do. But i got to remind you of the gospel. I would have you put that to the forefront of your memory. The thing that I first taught you. It starts there. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we're all sinners in need of a savior. The end of Christian blindness, the beginning of Christian seeing, starts when we look at our salvation. It starts when we look at the cross. Why is that? 
Because those who have been forgiven much love much. If you will read on down there in Luke chapter 7 where the woman with the alabaster box comes to worship at Jesus' feet, you will see that he tells a parable about two debtors. One of the debtors is forgiven a small debt. One of the debtors is forgiven a large debt. And Jesus asked the question. He said, which one of these debtors is going to love more? And they give him the answer. And they said, the one who is, has been forgiven much debt. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You want to learn to love people more? You want to learn to have compassion for others? Start by looking at what Jesus has already done for you. I want that to be clear. Because there are essentially two states in the human condition. Two. Death and life. The Bible says I set before you two things. What are they? Death and life. There are two states in the human condition. You were dead in your sin, and now you are alive in Jesus Christ. By virtue of God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you will live with him eternally in heaven. And every person who remains outside of Jesus Christ will remain dead in their sin for all eternity. And when they pass from this life into the next, guess what? They will live in utter torment forever and ever, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For all eternity, forever and ever. I cannot overstate the glory and the joy that awaits for those of us who believe and hope in Jesus Christ. I just can't underline that enough. I can't exclamate that enough. I cannot overstate it. And you know what? I cannot overstate the utter hell that awaits those who do not. I need that to be clear. Because my main point this morning is that as Christians, as redeemed people who have been saved from that fate, we must look, lift up our eyes, and see through the eyes of compassion that has been enabled and fueled by serious joy. But we cannot do that if we cannot accept that truth, that basic truth that there are essentially two kinds of people, those who are dead in their sins, those who are alive in Christ. There's a well-known magician named Penn Gillette. He is the pen of Penn and Teller. Anybody know who Penn and Teller are? You heard of them? Okay. He is a, also a very well-known atheist. Um, and uh, he has something to say about Christians who don't try to convince others about the gospel. And I think it's telling what this atheist has to say about Christians who don't try to convince others about the gospel. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now that, for those of you who don't know what that means, that means to try to convince others of your beliefs. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and there's these atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who just say, leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you believed 
that the truck wasn't coming down on you, there's a certain point where I'm going to tackle you. And this eternal life is more important than that. This is coming from an atheist. I think that's telling. Compassion begins with empathy. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. That's where it starts. Empathy is the ability and the tendency to feel what someone else is feeling, to feel their struggles, to feel someone else's suffering. What makes Christian empathy so potent is that those who are lost don't yet know that they are lost. They don't know that they are in the dark. They've never seen the light. They have no reference for it. We know it. We've seen it. We've been there. They don't know what real freedom is. We know what real freedom is. They don't know what serious joy is. We know what it is. All they have are cheap imitations, knockoffs. They've got imitation perfume. We've got the real deal. They've got fool's gold, and we have the real deal. They are lost. They are sheep without shepherds. This is why Jesus told the disciples, look, lift up your eyes and see. Like we talked about last week, we must be intentional about this kind of thing or we risk being willfully blind. Looking to our salvation helps us on our journey to compassion because it gives us empathy for the lost. We can say, I once was lost, but now I am found. Now, don't, don't get confused because I don't want you to concentrate on the lost part. It's the found part. Amen. All right? Because the, the tendency is to want to concentrate on the lost part so we can sympathize but I don't, we don't want to go there because this is compassion that is fueled by serious joy. And I'm going to show you something here in just a minute. Empathy is only the beginning of compassion, all right, that is enabled and fueled by serious joy. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines compassion as a form of love. It's showing kindness or favor, being gracious, having pity or mercy. In Scripture, the usage of compassion is always both a feeling and the accompanying action, an appropriate action based on that feeling. So the feeling, that's empathy, and the action based on that feeling. All right? So we look to our salvation for empathy, and then we look to our Savior for action. So that's the second thing we must do. We must look to our Savior. There are so many times in the scripture that tell us that Jesus was moved with compassion to do something. He was saw and he was moved to do something. I want to focus on one particular instance that's in our text this morning in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 30. I believe that's where the story actually starts. We read verse 34. But I'll just, I'll just narrate it for you. Jesus had sent his disciples out on a missionary trip. He sent them out two by two, and they went out to teach and to preach and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And so now they have come back, and they're going to report on how it all went. He said, y'all go and do, this is like a trial run, all right, for when he's gone, this is a trial run. Y'all go see how you do. Now you're going to come back, and we're going we're to debrief. 
and he's getting ready for the debriefing. Anyone who's ever done military work, you've ever done project work, you know that the mission debriefing is almost as important, if not as important, as the actual mission because you learn so much in the debriefing, right? And my military guys, y'all, can you attest to that? Yes, I got a good two amens over there. That's good. All right, this is important stuff. And Jesus is getting ready to do the debriefing with his, with his disciples. I mean, this is important work. And so the, the text says that we're going to go away to a desolate place. That's a, a secluded place. We're going to get off to ourselves with my group, my, my, my troop, and we're going we're to talk about what happened, what went right, what went wrong. They're going to tell him, we tried this, it didn't work. We taught in this city, they didn't receive. And he's going he's gonna, to, man, he's, he's going to one-on-one with them. You know, we're going to talk about this, we're gonna, and it's gonna, he's going to teach them. How to, how to spread the gospel to the world because there's going to be a time when he's gone and they're going to need this new knowledge, right? They're going to need this experience. So he's going to go away to a desolate place, a place where they can be alone and have this time. But what happens? The crowds hear about it and they beat him to the desolate place. And the Bible says in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw this great crowd. They got there before he, he got there. Don't you know he was frustrated? Do, do you, you know that Jesus felt frustration, right? Yeah. Right. He, he's not tuned into the mothership. I mean, he, the Bible says he was subject to like passions as we are. He felt frustration. Don't you know the disciples were frustrated? They just got back. They were excited. to. They wanted this feedback. But what does it say? There are a couple of things I want to point out. In spite of all this, Jesus had compassion on the crowd Biblical compassion, <clears throat> as a verb, has a pattern, all right? Nearly every time you see this word compassion used in conjunction with an action, so as a verb, it's almost always accompanied by seeing. Now, I'm going to point you to last week's message and put a shameless plug in there. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. It's seeing. The pattern is that the person saw had compassion, and then did something. Now, sometimes the action, the doing, is implied. It's not specified, but it's implied. But there's always a doing, all right? So, and we see that here. Jesus saw, he had compassion, and then he did something. Remember, in Scripture, compassion always involves both a feeling, that's empathy, and the appropriate accompanying action, John, 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let's, just not, let's not just talk about it. Let's not just give voice to it. Let's act on it. Let's do it. Let's do our love. True compassion, real compassion, always, always involves doing. You know, you, you can feel all kinds of feelings For all kinds of people, in all kinds of situations, but you cannot call it compassion unless you do something about it. On the other side of that coin, you can do all kinds of things for all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, but you cannot call it compassion unless you have love. What did Paul say? If I can do all these things for all these people in all these places, but if I have not love, it has profited nothing? Okay. The second thing I want you to notice is that he told us why he had compassion. Do you see that? Why do you have compassion on them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So 
So what does that say? What does that mean? They were, they were lost. They were lost. Sheep without a shepherd just kind of wander aimlessly, right? They're lost. So what do we have here? Jesus saw that they were lost, so he had compassion on them. If anyone knew the helpless and desperate state of the lost sheep, it was Jesus. So he was moved with compassion to stop what he was doing and teach them, to save them from their helpless and desperate state. Right? I tricked you. I tricked you into that. I didn't really want that amen. Let me flip that around on you, okay? Because I think the other way is more accurate to what Jesus was thinking, and it's better for what we should be thinking. If anyone knew the blessed and joyful state of the children of God, it was Jesus. So he was moved with compassion to stop what he was doing and teach them so that they could become the children of God. Amen? Amen. Well, that didn't, that went over like a ton of bricks. I thought that was better. See, compassion can work two ways. And since compassion is made up of empathy, empathy can work two ways. On the one hand, you can say, you have it, you have it so bad. And it makes me feel so bad for you, so I want to do what I can to make things less bad for you. I would call that downward-facing empathy, downward-facing compassion. There's nothing wrong with that particularly. I just don't think it's the best one or the most potent one. Or, on the other hand, you can say, I have it so good, and I, I want you to have it as good as I do because I have it so good. I just got to share this thing. Amen. So I want to do whatever I can to make things better for you. That is compassion fueled by serious Amen. joy. Amen. And I think it is far more powerful both for the person who is feeling that compassion and for the object of that compassion. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it is really one of my, it may, uh, it's not my favorite, but it, it, it's up there, is where in Hebrews 12, 2, where it says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Now, there were, are, are many reasons that Jesus endured the cross. And um, if you think about it, each and every one of you is a reason. Amen. Amen. But when you get right down to its irreducible base, which is what the writer of Hebrews is giving us here, when you strip away all the other layers and you're left with the most basic, most fundamental, foundational reason of why Christ endured the cross, what kept him there, what sent him there, it was for joy. Jesus endured the cross because he knew the joy that awaited him on the other side. That's it. He suffered and died knowing that his sacrifice would save countless souls and that would make him very happy. He went to the cross and that would make him happy. 
And when I think about that in terms of the, the Great Commission, in terms of making disciples, I imagine that should make me very happy. Things like social awkwardness and rejection and ridicule, are they not crosses to endure for the joy set before me? When David sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba, he prayed, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I find it fascinating. Joy of your salvation, not the security of your salvation, not the righteousness that is found in your salvation, not the comfort in your salvation, not the peace of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Ezra told the people in Nehemiah that the joy of the Lord was their strength. My challenge this morning is that we not let the light go out on our joy in Jesus Christ. It fuels us in kingdom building. It opens our eyes and softens our hearts with that upward compassion that allows us to see the harvest and to be moved with compassion to bring in the harvest that is in front of us. I think the temptation for many of us is to let our hearts grow cold without even realizing it. We're just going about our day. You know, we're just, just doing the business of the day, and we just let our hearts grow cold. And from time to time, we have to be reminded. That's why the gospel is news. That's why it's n- news, good news. Something that we must remember and not do. Because if it's something that we do, it becomes rote. It was rote for the Pharisees. It had become just repetition, and they had made it into something that was an abomination before God, his holy thing. That's why it's news. It's something that we just remember, and we must bring it to our remembrance. Reignite the joy within so that when Christ returns, he will find us as good and faithful servants, as laborers in the field. Amen? I hope you're challenged this morning. I really do. Amen. And I hope, I hope that um, you look toward the cross Amen. and find joy. I'm fighting for mine this morning. Amen. Fighting hard. You ought to fight for yours. I mean, fight for it. It's worth fighting for. Amen? Amen. It will fuel you into great things. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for this time together, and I just thank you for all that you have done for us. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your joy. It truly is strength. Father, I pray that you bless us as we go out of this place. Enable us and embolden us, Lord, to be laborers in your field, to say the things that we need to say, to open our eyes with compassion to those that are around us. Help us, Lord, to build your kingdom and your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.